0: Section thirty-one of the history of chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Karen Turton. The history of chemistry by Thomas Thomson, Volume One, Chapter Eight of the attempts to establish a theory in chemistry, Part Six. One man alone would have been insufficient for all the labors undertaken by M. Duchamel but he had a brother who lived upon his estate at Denenvilliers, the name of which he bore and divided his time between the performance of benevolent actions and studying the operations of nature m denain prosecuted in his retreat the observations and experiments entrusted by his brother to his charge thus in fact the memoirs of Duhamel exhibit the assiduous labours of two individuals one of whom contentedly remained unknown to the world satisfied with the good which he did and the favours which he conferred upon his country and the human race. The works of M. Duhamel are very voluminous, and are all written with the utmost plainness. Everything is elementary, no previous knowledge is taken for granted. His writings are not addressed to philosophers, but to all who are in quest of practical knowledge. He has been accused of diffuseness of style, and of want of correctness, but his style is simple and clear, and as his object was to inform, not philosophers, but the common people, greater conciseness would have been highly injudicious neither he nor his brother ever married but thought it better to devote their undivided attention to study both were assiduous in no ordinary degree but the ardour of duchamel himself continued nearly undiminished till within a year of his death when though he still attended the meetings of the academy he no longer took the same interest in its proceedings on the twenty second of july seventeen eighty one just after leaving the academy he was struck with apoplexy and died after lingering twenty-two days in a state of coma. He was, without doubt, one of the most eminent men of the age in which he lived. But his merits as a chemist will chiefly be remembered in consequence of his being the first person who demonstrated, by satisfactory evidence, the peculiar nature of soda, which had been previously confounded with potash. His merits as a vegetable physiologist and agriculturist were of a very high order. Peter Joseph Macaire was born at Paris in 1718, his father, Joseph Macquer, was descended from a noble Scottish family, which had sacrificed its property and its country out of attachment to the family of the Stuarts. Young Macaire made choice of medicine as a profession, and devoted himself chiefly to chemistry, for which he showed early a decided taste. He was admitted a member of the Academy of Sciences in the year 1745, when he was twenty-seven years of age. Original researches in chemistry, the composition of chemical elementary works, and the study of the arts connected with chemistry occupied the whole remainder of his life. His first paper treated of the effect produced by heating a mixture of saltpetre and white arsenic. It was previously known that when such a mixture is distilled, nitric acid comes over tinge with a blue color, but nobody had thought of examining the residue of this distillation. Macro found it soluble in water and capable of crystallizing into a neutral salt composed of potash, the base of saltpetre and an acid into which the arsenic was changed by the nitric acid communicating oxygen to it. Marker found that a similar salt might be obtained with soda or ammonia for its base. Thus, he was the first person who pointed out the existence of arsenic acid and ascertained the properties of some of the salts which it forms. But he made no attempt to obtain arsenic acid in a separate state or to determine its properties. That very important step was reserved for Scheele for Macker seems to have had no suspicion of the true nature of the salt which he had formed. His next set of experiments was on Prussian blue. He made the first step towards the discovery of the nature of the principle to which the pigment owes its colour. Prussian blue had been accidentally discovered by Diesbach, an operative chemist of Berlin, in 1710, but the mode of producing it was kept secret till it was published in 1724 by Dr. Woodward in the Philosophical Transactions. It consisted in mixing potash and blood together and heating the mixture in a covered crucible, having a small hole in the lid, till it ceased to give out smoke. The solution of this mixture in water, when mixed with a solution of sulphate of iron, threw down a green powder, which became blue when treated with muriatic acid. This blue matter was Prussian blue. Macro ascertained that when Prussian blue is exposed to a red heat, its blue colour disappears, and it is converted into common peroxide of iron. Hence, he concluded that Prussian blue is a compound of oxide of iron, and of something which is destroyed or driven off by a red heat. He showed that this something possessed the characters of an acid, but when Prussian blue is boiled with caustic potash, it loses its blue colour, and if the potash be boiled with successive portions of Prussian blue, as long as it is capable of discolouring them, it loses the characters of an acid and assumes those of a neutral salt, and at the same time acquires the property of precipitating iron from the solutions of the sulphate at once of a blue colour. Macro ascribed the green colour thrown down by mixing the blood lye and sulphate of iron to the potash in the blood lye, not being saturated with the colouring matter of Prussian blue. Hence a portion of the iron is thrown down in the state of Prussian blue, and another portion in that of yellow oxide of iron. These two being mixed form a green. The muriatic acid dissolves the yellow oxide and leaves the Prussian blue untouched. Macro, however, did not succeed in determining the nature of the colouring matter, a task reserved for Shield whose lot it was to take up the half-finished investigations of Macker, and throw upon them a new and brilliant light. Macker thought that this colouring matter was phlogiston. On that account, the potash saturated with it, which was employed by chemists to detect the presence of iron by forming with it Prussian blue, was called phlogisticated alkali. Macker, conjointly with Baume, subjected the grains of crude platinum to which the attention of chemists had been newly drawn to experiment their principal object was to examine its fusibility and ductility. They succeeded in fusing it imperfectly, by means of a burning mirror, and found that the grains thus treated were not destitute of ductility, but upon the whole the experiments of these chemists threw but little light upon the subject. Many years elapsed before chemists were able to work this refractory metal, and to make it into vessels fitted for the uses of the laboratory. For this important improvement, which constitutes an era in chemistry, the chemical world was chiefly indebted to Doctor Wallerstein. In the year seventeen fifty, M. Macker was charged with a commission by the court. There existed at that time in Brittany a man, the Count de la Gare, who, yielding to a passion for benevolence, had for forty years devoted himself to the service of suffering humanity. He had built an hospital by the side of a chemical laboratory. He took care of the patients in the hospital himself and treated them with medicines prepared in his laboratory. Some of these were new, and, in his opinion, excellent medicines, and he offered to sell them to government for the service of his hospital. Macro was charged, by government, with the examination of these medicines. The project of the Count de la Garay was to extract the salutary parts of minerals by a long maceration with neutral salts. Among other things, he had prepared a mercurial tincture by a process which lasted several months but this tincture was merely a solution of corrosive sublimate in spirit of wine such is the history of most of those boasted secrets sometimes they are chimerical and sometimes known to all the world except to those who purchase them m macker had the fortune to live at a time when chemistry began to be freed from the reveries of alchemists but methodical arrangement was a merit still unknown to the elementary chemical books especially in france where a residue of cartesianism added to the natural obscurity of the science by surcharging it with pretended mechanical explanations. Macre was the first French chemist who gave to an elementary treatise the same clearness, simplicity, and method, which is to be found in the other branches of science. This was no small merit, and undoubtedly contributed considerably to the rapid improvement of the science which so speedily followed. His elements of chemistry were translated into different languages, especially into English, and long constituted the textbook employed in the different European universities. Dr. Black recommended it for many years in the University of Edinburgh. Indeed, it was only superseded in consequence of the new views introduced into chemistry by Lavoisier, which, requiring a new language to render them intelligible, naturally superseded all the elementary chemical books which had preceded the introduction of that language. Macker, during a number of years, delivered regular courses of chemical lectures, conjointly with Baume. In these courses he preferred the arrangement which appeared to him to require the least preliminary knowledge of chemistry. He described the experiments, stated the facts with clearness and precision, and explained them in the way which appeared to him most plausible, according to the opinions generally received, but without placing much confidence in the accuracy of these explanations. He thought it necessary to theorize a little, to enable his pupils the better to connect the facts and to remember them, and to put an end to that painful state of uncertainty which always results from a collection of facts without any theoretical links to bind them together. When the discoveries of Lavoisier began to shake the foundation of the Stalian theory, Macker was old, and it appears, from a letter of his published by Delamethere in the Journal de Physique, that he was alarmed by the prophetic announcements of Lavoisier in the Academy that the reign of Phlogiston was drawing towards an end. M. Condorcet assures us that his attachment to theory, by which he means Phlogiston, was by no means strong, but his own letter to Delamethere rather shows that this statement was not quite correct. How, indeed, could he fail to experience an attachment to opinions which it had been the business of his whole life to inculcate? Macer also published a Dictionary of Chemistry, which was very successful, and which was translated into most of the European languages. This mode of treating chemistry was well suited to a science still in its infancy, and which did not yet constitute a complete whole. It enabled him to discuss the different topics in succession, and independent of each other, and thus introduce much important matter which could not easily have been introduced into a systematic work on chemistry the second edition of this dictionary was published just at the time when the gases began to attract the attention of scientific men when facts began to multiply with prodigious rapidity and to shake the confidence of chemists in all received theories he acquitted himself of the difficult task of collecting and stating these new facts with considerable success and doubtless communicated much new information to his countrymen, for the discoveries connected with the gases originated and were chiefly made in England, from which, on account of the revolutionary American war, there was some difficulty of obtaining early information. M. Hellet, who was commissioner of the Council for Dyeing, and chemist to the porcelain manufacture, requested to have M. Macker for an associate. This request did much honour to Hellet, as he was conscious that the reputation of Macker as a chemist was superior to his own macker endeavoured in the first place to lay down the true principles of the art of dyeing as the best method of dissipating the obscurity which still hung over it a great part of his treatise on the art of dyeing silk published in the collection of the academy of sciences has these principles for its object he gave processes also for dyeing silk with prussian blue and for giving to silk by means of cochineal as brilliant a scarlet colour as can be given to woollen cloth by the same dye stuff he published nothing on the porcelain manufacture though he attended particularly to the processes and introduced several ameliorations the beautiful porcelain earth at present used as several was discovered in consequence of a premium which he offered to any person who could point out a clay in every respect proper for making porcelain macker passed a great part of his life with a brother whom he affectionately loved after his death he devoted himself entirely to his wife and two children whose education he superintended he was rather averse to society, but conducted himself well in it with much sweetness and affability. He was fond of tranquillity and independence, though his health had been injured a good many years before his death. The calmness and serenity of his temper prevented strangers from being aware, that he was afflicted with any malady. He himself was sensible that his strength was gradually sinking. He predicted his approaching end to his wife, whom he thanked for the happiness which he had spread over his life. He left orders that his body should be opened after his decease, that the cause of his death might be discovered. He died on the 15th of February, 1784. An ossification of the aorta, and several calculus concretions found in the cavities of the heart, had been the cause of the disease under which he had suffered for several years before his death. These four chemists, of whose lives a sketch has just been given, were the most eminent that France ever produced, belonging to the Stalian school of chemistry. Baron Malouin, Ruel Sr., Tillot, Cadet, Baume, Sage, and several others whose names I purposely admit, likewise cultivated chemistry during that period, with assiduity and success, and were each of them the authors of papers which deserve attention, but which it would be impossible to particularize without swelling this work into a size greatly beyond its proper limits. Hilaire Marin Ruel, who was born at Cayenne in 1718, was, however, too eminent a chemist to be passed over in silence. His elder brother William Francis was a member of the Academy of Sciences and demonstrated to Macquart, who gave lectures in the Jardin du Roy. At the death of Macquart in seventeen seventy, Hilaire Marin Ruel succeeded him. He devoted the whole of his time and money to this situation and quite altered the nature of the experimental course of chemistry given in the Jardin du Roy. He was in some measure the author of the chemistry of animal bodies, at least in France. When he published his experiments on the salts of urine and of blood, he had scarcely any model, and though he committed some considerable mistakes, he ascertained several essential and important facts, which have been since fully confirmed by more modern experimenters. He died on the 7th of April, 1779, aged 61 years. His temper was peculiar, and he was too honest and too open for the situation in which he was placed, and for a state of society in which everything was carried by intrigue and finesse. This is the reason why, in France, his reputation was lower than it ought to have been. It accounts, too, for his never becoming a member of the Academy of Sciences, nor of any of the other numerous academies which at that time swarmed in France. Nothing is more common than to find these unjust decisions raise or depress men of science far above or far below their true standard. de Lisle, the first person who commenced the study of crystals, and placed that study in a proper point of view, was a man of the same stamp with the younger Ruel, and never on that account became a member of any academy, or acquired that reputation during his lifetime, to which his laborious career justly entitled him. It would be an easy, though an invidious task, to point out various individuals, especially in France, whose reputation, in consequence of accidental and adventitious circumstances, rose just as much above their deserts as those of Ruel and Rome de Lisle were sunk below. End of section 31